This is the fourth Sunday of Advent, the final Sunday in the season of Advent, which is the preparatory season for Christmas. Uh, on the first Sunday of Advent, I talked about some things about the origin of the Christian year and what we had in terms of its uh, evolution over about three or four centuries was, the, was Easter, the first post, a preparatory season that grew around Easter, which originally was Holy Week and then what we call Lent, and then Christmas and a preparatory season around that called Advent, which in Northern Europe, where our forebears as, as Anglicans came from, was six weeks long, just like Lent, and heavily penitential. And I mentioned that part of that has to do with the biblical text, because in the Latin Bible, which was the Bible of Western Christianity for 1,100 years, Jerome translates repent with the Latin words penitentium agite, do penance. So it will be natural to think uh, that's what we should be doing in a pre uh, preparatory season. And then Luther and some others came along Erasmus, and then they looked at the Greek text, which they didn't have back when this all started, and it said, metanoete, repent, turn around, look at your life in a new way, reorient yourself. And two different words that are used in the New Testament for this uh, involve both the internal, emotional, spiritual, and mental states that are part of our spiritual journey internally, and also our corporate self-understanding about the way in which we need to live in a new way. One word is about the internal resolve that we all make, both institutionally and personally. And the other one is about how do you put that resolution in your hands? How do you do it? How do you live it? How do you try to do that? And I mentioned on that Sunday that I have a spiritual method that I use that's, that's uh, from the 17th century in France, an era in French spirituality that was absolutely hair-raising. But this is a good method. It's called the Sulpician method. Jesus before my eyes in adoration, Jesus in my heart in communion, and Jesus in my hands in cooperation. So on a daily basis, you begin to uh, reflect and decide each day how you're going to put those resolves, that uh, adoration, into your hands. And look at each person as made in the image and likeness of God. I know this is very easy to say, but it is extremely hard to do. But you've got to start. We all have to start somewhere. So the first Sunday was about a new age coming. And a new age both personally in terms of our resolves and a new age in terms of God's presence in human history. And the second week was the introduction every year to John Don't Sing Jingle Bells to Me, the Baptist. And what he signifies for those who were the eyewitnesses to the earthly ministry of Jesus and how when the church wrote the scriptures, 
they began to put two and two together and to see that somehow John the Baptist drew up into himself the whole summary of Old Testament prophecy and the prophets of Israel. And last week, we talked about Jesus as the one, the Messiah. John the Baptist is now in prison, and he sends a message to Jesus and said, Are you the one, the one or should we wait for another? And Jesus doesn't ever give a direct answer. He just said, look at the results. Look at the results of people listening to what I've had to say and how their lives have been transformed and how now they seek to be the transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love that they're called to be. And this week, we move now to the immediate coming of the Messiah in the birth of Jesus. And so we read in Matthew's Gospel, uh, Matthew's version of the Annunciation. And it affords the opportunity for the preacher, or at least this preacher, to say some things about uh, how the church understands the virgin birth, and maybe some things about Mary. But before that, I want to say some things about the first two readings from Isaiah, and from the introduction to Paul's letter to the Romans. Today we read from chapter 7 of Isaiah, which is uh, Isaiah. I've mentioned this to you before. There are three Isaiahs, actually. But Isaiah is in chapter 7 talking about a concrete situation on the ground. King Ahaz, who is king of the southern kingdom of Judah is under siege in Jerusalem from the king of the northern kingdom of Israel and he has made a pact with Syria and so Ahaz is under a great threat so Isaiah tells him that he's going to give him a suggestion about how we look at the historical reality and how in our present circumstances we can understand God's uh, at work in history. And the king said, I don't want to hear anything about it. I'm not interested in that. Reginald Fuller, who is an Anglican biblical scholar, he died a few years ago, one of the most famous ones in the 20th century, uh, in a commentary I read about this said, Dr. Fuller says, because he wants to have no truck with Isaiah's advice, doesn't want to listen to the prophets. So what's new, right? So Isaiah tells him anyway, look, the young woman is with child and she'll bear a son and she'll name him Emmanuel. God is with us. So his wife is pregnant and she's going to have a baby and she has a son. His name is Hezekiah and he will succeed Ahaz and he will continue the Davidic dynasty in Israel, in Judah. And so we have once again the affirmation of the continuity of God's message in human history and in the circumstances in which people find themselves. This text will be taken up by Matthew 
in the gospel for this morning, which I'll talk, to, talk about in a couple of minutes. But first, Paul, from his perspective, is opening his letter to the Romans. I should mention this here. Uh, oftentimes, I think it's certainly true for me that when someone gets up at the liturgy and reads to us from Paul's letters and Romans is one of the worst offenders, there just seems to be this long paragraph, run-on sentences, convoluted reasoning inside this, and how in the world do you make sense of this? And it isn't that Paul was a bad writer, necessarily, but it's the way in which the words were transmitted during his time. So if you were to look, for example, at a Greek manuscript... There are two kinds. There's minuscules and uncials. Uncials are a manuscript written in all capital letters. And the way they're written is there is no punctuation. They are all run together. All of the letters are run together. So you have to know what they say so you can punctuate the text. That's part of what what they call textual criticism in the study of the Bible. And in the other studies of early manuscripts, music, uh, you know, the the, uh, early writings of, of the Greeks, besides the biblical text. So you have to know how to punctuate it. If you were to look at a page, if you come to Episcopalian 101 next time, I will show you a visual aid of the, uh, a text of the New Testament in Greek, and you'll see what I mean. It's like one of those Sunday puzzles where circle the word in the midst of the maze of all of the letters. So it takes a little uh, sleuthing job. So that could be one of the reasons Paul is a little bit confusing, because he's dictating to a scribe who's just writing it down as he's dictating and then copying off of that That's how it got to where we are now. So Paul begins by writing to the Romans and and giving them a small creedal statement about who Jesus is. And he believes that the Romans know this, that they have accepted this kind of core belief initially about the origin of Jesus and the importance for, uh, for him as a Jew and for many of the Romans who became Christians who were also Jews. Descended from David according to the flesh, designated or enthroned Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. And so Paul is speaking about this because for him it is very important, as it is for Matthew, to connect him up with David. Because the early Christians and those just prior who were beginning to yearn for the Messianic age and to say that the Messiah is going to come and he will bring back to us the halcyon days of Israel of King David and King Solomon. And so we see in this man just the person who is going to be both a priestly Messiah and a kingly Messiah. And Paul is driving that home. He doesn't mention, you know, Jesus doesn't say much about his Davidic ancestry. But for many of the early followers of Jesus, it was extremely important to them. So then we need to segue into 
Matthew's gospel and what he says. This section in Matthew's gospel is called the infancy narrative. And there are only two infancy narratives in the whole of the New Testament, in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel. They do not appear in Mark and they do not appear in John. So today, Matthew, who in all probability was a former rabbi and certainly knew Hebrew, did not use the Hebrew text to talk about what is said by Isaiah to the king. Look, the young woman is with child and she'll bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. The word in Hebrew for the young woman is Alma. Alma means, in English, a young woman of marriageable age. Matthew quotes from the book of the prophet Isaiah, not from the Hebrew text, but from the Greek text. In 300 BC, they created a, a Greek Old Testament for all those Jews in the diaspora who couldn't read Hebrew or speak Hebrew anymore. And they wrote a Greek version of it. It's called the Septuagint. If you go to the Greek church today and they read from the Old Testament to you, they'll read it to you out of the Septuagint. And so when we get to look the young woman, in Matthew's gospel it reads, Parthenos, virgin, not young woman of marriageable age, virgin. Well, what? So? Both Matthew and Luke use that word. And the issue here is that they must have been the possessors of a early tradition within the, the church that wished to um, promote the virginity of Mary when she conceived Jesus. So the issue here is Mary conceived Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is an indication uh, in, for many in the early church of Jesus' divine origin. And so it has been accepted by Roman Catholics, Anglicans, Eastern Orthodox, Lutherans, and most Protestants. Before I finish up with that, let me just say there's some terminological things that we need to talk about in terms of how people talk about Mary and all these things. One of them is a term that you've heard called the Immaculate Conception. The Immaculate Conception does not have anything to do with Jesus or Mary. It has to do with Mary in this sense. It is a doctrine that was created in the Middle Ages that said Mary was conceived in her mother's womb without original sin. In other words, it meant that when she was born she had post-baptismal grace. Right? So she, she was in the clear when she got born. It doesn't have anything to do with the virgin birth, which is a different thing altogether. And there's also a doctrine or a belief that's held widely, again, in most Christian churches, called the perpetual virginity of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And as my Old Testament professor at Neshota House said, 
You can believe that if you want to. Right. But for some, it's a, it's a uh, important thing. Now, here's, here's the thing. My feeling about uh, the virgin birth is that uh, a person who is, has struggled for, for a long time or maybe always with that whole idea um, maybe could be reassured by the fact that it wouldn't be a detriment to uh, your faith and commitment to be somewhat agnostic about the truth of that uh, doctrine. My tendency is because it appears, albeit only twice, it appears in the infancy narratives, and clearly there were pains taken to preserve the tradition. So that means that uh, if you hold to it, you're not sort of in some wild fever swamp of fundamentalism. But it is still important to understand that uh, it may not be as important as, say, um, the Trinity or the divinity of Jesus, which all this is uh, about proving. Remember, written in a time when things like this helped, uh, were considered aids to belief and not hindrances. So when we say the virgin birth or the virginal conception, uh, that's something that I used to say in the religion class at St. Michael's School in Tucson to the fourth grade class. They'd say, well, uh, I mean, how did Mary get pregnant? And I'd say, the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. And at nine, they all went, oh, okay. <laughs> Credulous ended very quickly. Credulousness ended very quickly after nine. But I always found that interesting about how they accepted it. Just sort of, oh, well, okay, that's fine. Next question, you know. What we need to concern ourselves with is that we're starting now from these readings to talk about the Incarnation. Jesus' birth and Jesus' significance for uh, human history. In this man's words and in this man's works, we have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God. And why that's important, ju not just for Jesus, but for us, is, as it says in the letter to the Hebrews, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith the template that we lay over our own spiritual development and maturity. And by virtue of that, through prayer, through worship, through uh, connecting to others with love and compassion, we begin to learn something about the nature of humanity. So Father Thomas Keating would say, we are not God, but our true self is God. And the more we touch our true self which is that process in the Eastern Church they call theosis, meaning we become less unlike God as we seek to apply ourselves on the spiritual path. That means we have touched the divine spark in us, the Holy Spirit, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. And by virtue of that, we touch our own divinity, 
And that w was one of the things the Savior came here to teach, that it doesn't have to do just with sort of miraculous things. It has to do with how we become the best human being that we can be and how we make a difference in the world and how we become a transparency and a reflection of God's grace and love as we live. So as we wait for Christmas, give thanks for God coming among us as a human being and helping us touch our own divine spark. Amen.